Okay, good morning everyone. A couple of announcements before our invocation and prayer. The soup supper was a great success. Most of you came last week. It was wonderful. I think we had record-breaking numbers at the soup supper and at the services on uh, noon and also at 7 o'clock for Ash Wednesday. So this coming Wednesday, we've got another soup supper planned. If you're joining in our corporate fast, you're fasting on Wednesday, and then you're coming and breaking that fast with your brothers and sisters in Christ with the soup supper. And after that, we have a Vespers service from the hymnal from 7 to... The service usually only lasts about 30, 35 minutes. Uh, trying to keep it short so you can get home, get rested, and get up for the next day. That Vesper service will be focusing over the six weeks of Lent on the book of Jeremiah. We'll be taking uh, texts from the major sections of Jeremiah and showing forth um, the passion of Christ, the suffering and death of Christ for us and for our salvation. So join us on Wednesday for all of that. I'll pass around. It's mostly full, but I'll pass around this sign up for you before we begin. Okay, we will uh, be jumping back into chapter 23, having finished chapter 22, but let's have our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we last looked at chapter 22, verse 29. There's an artificial chapter break here. You can see that because it says, do you see... A man skillful in his work, he will stand before kings, he will not stand before obscure men. And then look at uh, 23.1, when you sit down to eat with a ruler. So we're in this little section on sitting with uh, kings and rulers and wealth. And then we're going to turn toward stinginess and poverty. We're going to have these proverbs grouped together. And then we'll get back to more randomized or seemingly randomized proverb after proverb when we hit verse 9 and following. If you recall from last week, we spent quite a bit of time talking about a man skillful in his work and how countercultural this is. But it is a wonderful and freeing reality when you see yourself as God sees you, as a royal priest made so through the waters of holy baptism, and that your vocation, whatever shape that may be, is effectively your temple and altar. So if you're a young child, your vocation is to obey your parents and learn and play. This is your temple. These are your altars. Do it well. As you become a student, your temple and your altar is your coursework. And then as you go into the workplace, no matter whether the job seems low in your eyes or not, it is the temple and altar at which you preside as a royal priest of God. And whatever you're doing, it is pleasing in his sight, and we want to do so unto him. 
that's, a, of course, a great relief as you go into the workplace and you realize, well, maybe my boss doesn't deserve it or my coworkers are ter- terrible or whatever else. And all, and all of that may be true. But it's completely aside from the point that your vocation as a high priest is a vocation before God. And you're serving him in your vocation. So as a royal priest, I think I said high priest, I should say royal priest, because truth, truth be told, Jesus is the high priest. We're royal priests under him. So that correction in place. In 23.1 then, we're still on this idea of kings and rulers. So when you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you, um, as you'll see in the little ESV study note, or who is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Right? So you're invited to the home of a ruler or a wealthy person, and there's a spread of fine foods and delicacies before you. Is this the time to make a pig of yourself? It's not. So obviously that's wise and that's prudent. But as we're going to see, and this will become even more clear as we're going to con- contrast the ruler and his table with the stingy man and his table. I think if we were to zoom all the way out, it would be something like this. Pay attention, especially where you're eating, what you're eating, who you're eating with. It's not a time to let down your guard. It's a time to be on your guard. There is a whole lot of social custom and a whole lot at play in mealtime. So that's a very general statement and true. Permit me to take it in a different direction very briefly, and that is that husbands and fathers want to pay special attention to the dinner times, the meal times, in their homes where the family is gathered. Usually that's what we call dinner, the evening meal. Because while your wife, while mom is making the food, that's your table and you're the host. Which means you want to take ownership and responsibility for what goes on at the table. If the, con- if the conversation goes into unsavory things, you're the one who wants to bring it back to the savory. If the conversation is unprofitable or fruitless, you're the one who is responsible to make it profitable and fruitful doesn't have to be super formal, although it certainly can be, and it doesn't preclude that. But to have the, the family meal be a place of nourishment, not only for the body, but also for the mind, and, and likewise the soul. So you're leading in prayer, bare minimum. Maybe you're doing a devotion in the evenings. Even if not, you're guiding the conversation in a way that is fruitful. It doesn't necessarily have to be ostensibly Christian or from the Bible, But nonetheless, there's a kind of ownership of you're the host at your own home. It's not a place to put down your guard and let what transpires transpire. If if chaos breaks loose, if hell breaks out at your dining room table, who's going to come and change it? There's there's no pastor who's going to come parachuting through the chimney and run over and it's your house, it's your domain, it's what God has given you headship over. So use that wisely and fruitfully and uh, 
there's really, there's really no limit to what can be taught at the table. Okay, so the table is an important place. Now, zooming back into this first half, when you're sitting with a ruler, it is not the place to give yourself over to your appetite. That's obvious, but a little more analysis on that. To let your passions go loose and go wild, a ruler or a king is going to see that and see that you have no self-control. And to see that you're not a serious person. So you want to conduct yourself accordingly, knowing that your the eyes are going to be on you. And thus you get this really graphic language of put a knife to your throat if you're given to your appetite. That's how seriously you should take not overstepping, not treading upon the graciousness of the king, not letting your passions show forth. So it is, um, you know, you're, you're a guest, but don't make yourself at home, so to speak. Now, might there be some takeaway from this in regard to our own experience? Do you ever sit in the presence of a ruler or have mealtime with a king? You do, I heard it. <laughs> This very day, the king of all kings is in our presence, and he spreads out his table in our midst. It's not the time to be foolish. It's not the time to act as though the table were your table and you could do with it as you please. It's the time to be respectful, not let your passions give give yourself over, but rather to respectfully and uprightly receive what he has to give, which happens to be the most precious food ever conceived. His own body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins, a feast of strength and a feast of joy and a feast of refreshment, but it is the king's table. It's the Lord's Supper. You know, when the Corinthians were abusing it, and some were, it's a different practice than than the church has had for, boy, nearly 2,000 years, but in this very earliest of churches, It was such that some could go up and consume a bunch of the communion bread to where there wouldn't be left for others. And some were coming up and drinking the wine so as to get drunk from it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This was going on in the first century church. So there is a concrete example of folks that are not putting a knife to their throat if they're given to appetite, but rather they're consuming and doing this abusive practice to their brothers and sisters the root of which, of course, is that they no longer realize what it is they're receiving. If they believed that it was the body of Christ that they were eating and the blood of Christ they were drinking, never would they eat that amount to where there's none left over. Neither would they drink that amount to where they're getting drunk. So Paul even says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. The implication is, you've made it your own. So then recognizing who is the host and what kind of food we're given, we receive it rather in humility, curbing all selfish appetites to receive from the king what he has to give, which is, again, his body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. So there might be an application to that in the ultimate sense as well, as we, every week, eat with the greatest of all rulers. Okay, let's go on because 3 through 5 flow forth from 1 and 2. 
Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. All right. Well, now it takes a turn, and now we're going to say, mm, "This is a different kind of meal than the one our Lord hosts, for there's no deceit in him. This is the kind of earthly feast before an earthly ruler, where the delicacies are full of deceptive food." Okay. So, do you know Hansel and Gretel? We've tamed all the fairy tales. I got scolded for telling my kids the Hansel and Gretel tale as it really is. You know, she fattens them up to eat them. So here's all the here's all the candy. You know, here's the little here's the little trail lead you to the house. Here's all the come on in, eat eat eat. Everything's good for you, right? Wrong. So a fancy version of Hansel and Gretel, and this works. We even call it. We even have a name for it. Wine and dine. Wine and dine someone. Here's some delicacies for you to eat. Here's some fine wines. Get everything nice and lubricated. Get everyone in a good mood. And here we go with my agenda. So there is an awareness that food and delicacies can be used in a manipulative way, especially if you're sitting at a table of a ruler who is not the one true ruler, you need to be aware that the chances of you being manipulated are pretty high. And that extends all the way down, doesn't it? All the way down. You might get invited to a meeting where you're wined and dined and then asked to do something that's contrary to your conscience. That would be exactly what this proverb is talking about. Put a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. Don't desire the delicacies. They're deceptive food. Don't get lured in, Hansel and or Gretel. (laughs) Okay. And it's silly, isn't it? But we fall for it. We fall for it. So four and five go with it. Do not toil to acquire wealth Be discerning enough to desist. When you have enough, you have enough. And don't make wealth your goal anyway. I suppose in context, make skill your goal. Make quality your goal, not wealth. And then, of course, as you pursue that quality, should wealth come, then be discerning enough to desist in whatever pursuit of wealth you have going on there so jesus i think puts this just so clearly remember how he says seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you so he wouldn't have us have treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal he wouldn't have us concerned with what we're going to eat or drink or put on the whole world pursues these things Literally, that's what they're after. They wake up in the morning and they think to themselves, how can I make more money? How can I get nicer food and drink and nicer clothes? Of course, in our luxurious atmosphere, how can I afford another home, a larger barn, another investment, a faster car? Okay, so all of the fallen world is pursuing these things. The call of Christianity is to pursue instead the reign of God and his righteousness, trusting that God will allow all the other things to 
be given to you as necessary. So I think our Lord's sermon there, it's part of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, is perfectly in accord with this idea of do not toil to acquire wealth. Our Lord would say, toil to acquire the kingdom. Agonize to enter through the narrow gate. When it comes to wealth, be discerning enough to desist. Wealth comes and goes anyway. doesn't matter. And you can't take any of it with you. Remember the guy who gets everything he wants? His biggest problem in life is his barn is overflowing. Like, what am I going to do? Oh, guess I've got to build another barn. Guess I've got to hire another wealth manager, another financial advisor. I'll open another account. That's his biggest problem. And God says to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And all that you've accumulated, what will become of it? I'll give it to my family. Mm. Should go read Ecclesiastes. Or go, go look um, statistically at people who inherit large sums, or win the lottery, or come into a windfall of cash. You sure you want that for your children? It's true enough, the Bible says we ought to hand something down to our children. That's, that's a good, godly, admirable. But to hand them down superfluous wealth? You're, you're tying an anchor. You better be sure that they can swim with that anchor around their neck. Because that's what it is. How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's not my word, but our Lord's. Okay, so dangers of wealth, dangers of pursuing wealth. Um, look what comes next in five, because it ties right into four, ties into the preceding Proverbs. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Okay, so that's, again, this idea of toiling to acquire wealth Here it's like seeing a bird and chasing after the bird and the bird flies away. So you chase after another bird and it flies away and and that's the pursuit of wealth for the vast majority of people in this life. So know when to desist and know when to pursue something that is even better and that God will freely give you, the wealth of his kingdom, the wealth of heaven. All right, so wealth is a fickle and fleeting thing. Even when you have a whole bunch of it, the value of it doesn't stay constant, does it? Government can rob you without changing the amount in your bank account, changing the value, decreasing it. All right, so that's where you want to invest all your your eggs in this life. That's... The foolish way, according to the Proverbs. All right, let's pause there since that's one half of the coin, which is this idea of sitting with a ruler, sitting with the wealthy, um, the dangers of pursuing wealth, the dangers of delicacies at the ruler's table. All make some sense. Now you watch the Super Bowl, you see all the people up in the boxes. Maybe you think, oh, I wish I was there. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. Yeah, please. I just wanted to throw in that the rich ruler, uh, or not rich ruler, the rich man, 
ate fared sumptuously. Yeah. And also there's Turkish delight. And there's, <laughs> right, uh, thank you. <laughs> there's also uh, Daniel refusing to eat the Babylonian food. Yeah, exactly. And all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah, lots of refusal to eat. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. Nothing to add there, except I forgot about Turkish delight. That's how the witch gets Edmund. I was reading it to my kids, and they're like, what's Turkish delight? So I bought some. I don't know if that was sending a mixed message or what. but it was. <laughs> Okay, did I see another hand, another comment? Too sweet. You can only have like 10 pieces. <laughs> okay, so other side of the coin then will be, let's see, it looks like 6 through 8. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. So here's the opposite. Um, so, yeah. The, and the little, the little superscript, stingy, the little superscript one, if you follow that over to the ESV note, Hebrew, whose eye is evil. So a man whose eye is evil. Okay, so notice the contrast. The rich man's got all his delicacies to see if he can entice you and manipulate you. The poor man, the stingy man, has his fare out for you, but he has an evil eye. He's watching to see how you'll receive it. So both of these folks, whether poor or rich, powerful or not, are using food. There's more than meets the eye to how they're using food. And you just thought you were a guest in their house. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy or who has an evil eye. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Okay, before we get to the next line. Eat and drink, he says, but his heart is not with you. Go ahead, feast, but he doesn't really want you to. Because he's stingy. There's strings attached to this food, just like there's strings attached to the other food. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Then eight, you will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Okay, now that's a very poignant way of saying, and I like the way the study note puts it. Figuratively, stingy hosts will make their guests wish that they had never eaten at their house. It's not a literal vomiting up. It's just you'll go, I, I don't want this. <laughs> I ate this food that you put before me. I thought it was a gift, and it wasn't. Now, you, now I owe you or some such thing. Um, now I wish that I could vomit it up. And all my pleasant words and all our pleasantries that were exchanged, that was all just nothing. Because the whole thing is you were setting this trap with your stingy eye. Here's the delicacies. As soon as I eat, you begrudge it. And there's a quid pro quo implied. So more broadly, zooming out, this is a problem that you may have noticed, if not at the dinner table elsewhere, that there are folks who will give gifts... But they're not really gifts. Kind of more like fishing. In fact, there's a nice juicy worm. Never mind the hook. You go, well, thank you for the worm. That's when the hook's set. 
and in you're pulled in, and you got to say, well, wait a minute. I didn't know this is the game we were playing. So it is uh, worthwhile then to pay attention to this kind of nature as well, the stingy nature that will lay out a gift, begrudge you for taking it, and make you feel guilty for receiving what they freely gave. All right? So for some of you, that'll resonate. For some of you, not. <laughs> Please. Uh, I'm just interested, or I'm struck by this. Uh, his heart is not with you. Because the flip side of this is, you know, when you invite your family over or friends over, yeah. and they're enjoying the food and, you know, eating yeah, yeah. eating with, with satisfaction, that makes you happy. Absolutely. You know? Uh, and But with the stingy man or the ruler, it looks like it's the same parable twice, really. You know, the ruler, you know, it's it like... It could be. You know, it could be. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's like they're testing you. They're, or, or, like you said, whining and dining you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, but, but when a family member is eating at your house and you love them, right. you love it when they're enjoying the food. Right. Absolutely. So if you've got a special guest, you've got a bunch of steaks, you pick the nicest one and give it to the guest because you love them and want them to enjoy. And the whole thing is a celebration of their coming. And it's, yeah, um, then, then um, yeah, it's not that your eye is evil toward them. Your eye is good toward them, right? Of course, Jesus offering us his body is probably the, yeah, the, the pinnacle of the that. The ultimate, exactly yeah. right, exactly right. Yeah, that's all, that's all extremely well said. So then if you imagine, uh, you know, if you were to be invited over to a family that that doesn't have a lot, but there's a kind of conniving host, and he gives you the best piece of meat, to use our analogy, and as you're eating it, you're even sensing, like, he begrudges that to you. That's a nasty feeling in itself, but second to that, it's like, okay, what's coming next? What's the, what's the game that's afoot or being played? And here we thought we could just eat in peace. Yes, sir. I was just going to add, uh, years ago, a friend of mine um, in a non-church setting told me, he says, there are givers, takers, and swappers in life. He says, <laughs> observe that. And in a sense, maybe this framework fits into this, except as you're talking, I'm thinking there are givers who give good things for you not necessarily food, is for your soul or do things for you without any strings. Mm-hmm. Of course, the swapper has a big string on it, and then takers yeah. are just separate. Yeah, yeah. So he, he gave me that framework, and it's come to mind now. Yeah, it's a good observation. I think it's generally too, true. I don't mean to undermine it in any way. I, um, you know, in my life in the church, I get to see a lot of giving and a lot of receiving. It's a wonderful part of the body of Christ. And the only comment I would make is that frequently it's a little more complicated. Who might be a taker in this relationship is a giver in that relationship. And that, that's aside from your point, your observation, which is kind of a psychological one, one's overarching way of viewing life. Um, but all that to say that within the economy, the household of the church, there's kind of this beautiful asymmetry that I see very frequently where even if someone is the recipient in, say, this relationship and the next relationship, they're giving and bestowing. 
Yeah, so a nice, beautiful harmony of the family of God. Okay, what else? On we go. 23.9, and we're going to get some repeats here. In fact, just basically word-for-word repeats. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Okay, what does that sound like? That sounds like don't cast your pearls before swine. And that's indeed the case. So if you lay before someone a pearl and they trample it, well, lesson learned and no more. That's the wise approach. So this will happen to you occasionally, in specific occasions, I mean. But you may even find people in your life who just trample it one day and the next, all the same. And so there's a recognition that needs to take place in your mind not to keep doing this, but just to not bother. So that's the wisdom here. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Um, There's people that are superficial people. Be superficial. There's people who are deeper people. You can be more deep. There's people who will receive uh, the wisdom that you're speaking. Speak all the more so that they'll receive it all the more. Okay. Ten is a repeat of... 220 or 2228 do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless for their redeemer is strong he will plead their cause against you so in 2228 you have do not remove the ancient landmark that your fathers have set now there's no further threat or warning tied in Uh, Moving the ancient landmark, if you recall, is a way of cheating subtly without anyone knowing. You do this incrementally over time. Um, Entering the fields of the fatherless is abusing the orphan or abusing um, those who are weak and can't do anything about it. So cheating with your neighbor unaware, abusing the weak who can't do anything about it. These are uh, marks of criminality and great sin, which, what, what shall we say, like most of the businesses in America are, the large, huge corporations are based on this kind of behavior, aren't they? So, oh, like, like I said, you don't want to be in the Super Bowl box with those people if it means being in the judgment seat with them when the Lord returns. That's not a trade any of us would want to make. Because he sees all of these things, he knows all of these things, and his anger is kindled. So that's the, that's the warning and admonition here, too, not to move the ancient landmark, not to enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. And as you can see in the ESV, capitalized Redeemer, it is a reference to God who loves the fatherless, who loves the poor and honest And he will plead their cause against you. That is, if you want the Lord as your, to prosecute you, then by all means, cross him on this, and he'll be happy to. Okay, so looking out for the fatherless and looking out for the weak is wisdom, because the Lord is watching and he cares.
I don't know if they capitalize um, the pro uh, the pronouns. I can never keep it straight. I don't think they do in the ESV. Um, just trying to glance for another example. I mean, I would. I like to capitalize the pronouns, but I don't think the ESV does. Somebody, if somebody sees, let me know. Okay, um, so these are kind of standalones. A little bit of repetition. 12, apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. We spent a great deal of time on this theme, if not last week, then two weeks ago. The idea that hearing isn't strictly a passive activity. Did you hear or did you listen? So listening is the act of applying your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. Like, I didn't get anything out of church service. Was the word of God there? Yes. But you didn't get anything out of it? Not God's problem. Like, oh, the liturgy is dead. In fact, it isn't. It's the word of God. It's alive. If you think it's dead, it's really you who are dead. Sorry. Not sorry. So apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. (laughs) If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. So, um, a a kind of nice contrast there that a slight physical punishment can actually have a profound spiritual reward. It's just a reminder and admonition. We we talked at length before. No, no parent. None of us like confrontation. That's actually part of our sinful nature, not part of our saintly nature. We would just as soon be and be left alone and leave other people alone and leave other things alone and hope it all works out. But that passivity is a sinful passivity. It's a downhill passivity. So the impulse within us to not discipline, to not correct, to not do, is ultimately a lazy, sinful impulse. And it's in accord with our nature. So to come against and outside of our nature for the good of another is to engage in discipline, even um, recognizing that the slight and momentary temporal earthly affliction can have eternal consequences uh, for the good. Save his soul from shale. Yes, please. I just think it's so complicated there, too, though, because if you're not to put your pearls before swine, how do you know when it, that's what you're really doing or whether you're being non-confrontational? Okay, let me try to understand. Oh, non-confrontational. Oh, yeah, well, so it's basic, basically it's viewed like this. Try to put a concrete example to it, otherwise it's too abstract. You're sharing the gospel with someone or some teaching of God's word that's immediately applicable to their situation, and they trample all over it. Respond accordingly. Don't keep, right? Now, you don't have to, um, it's not like some sort of passive-aggressive thing, or it's not like you're just sitting there then. It's like, you don't want to hear it. You know, I, I told you, what, did, what was your response? Have you changed your opinion? Then you don't want to hear what I have to say. 
right? So think of our Lord's silence um, throughout the mock trials that occur in his passion. He's silent before Herod. He's silent before Pilate. He answers at minimum. He answers on his own terms. That's not passivity or acquiescence. He's not going to waste his breath. In fact, there's a kind of full-on aggression in his refusal to participate in the kangaroo court. So just because you're silent or choosing to be silent or choosing not to cast your pearls before swine doesn't mean that in, in any sense you've like given up or acquiesced or you're playing some passive-aggressive game or you're still trying to manipulate someone. It's like, no, I'm just not playing. Not always. It's tricky because I'm not God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, anything? Yes, yeah, sir. One other thing to note is that the contrast here is between, um, you know, dealing with a fool or dealing with the swine, not throwing your pearls before and swine, sure. and sparing the rod with your child. Yes. Because you have something to do with whether they become swine. Yes. yes. Right? So, so the idea is, you know, sort of nip the swinehood in the bud right. by, by not sparing the rod, but by discipline and, yes. and you know, becoming confrontational with, yes. your, with people that are in your, you know, your, the orbit of your authority. Yes. Right. I, exactly right. I would fully agree. I fully agree. Yes. And I've been thinking, we were talking just this week about how when we went to school, if you went to the principal's office, you got a big swat, I guess. Is it still done today? Oh, definitely not. It's c- considered child abuse today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I can remember doing a long-term substitute job in fifth grade. So I got to know the kids. And one kid was sociopathic. Well, the mother would have nothing of it. I was the problem. And... Um, what was the other thing? Oh, the principal. I'm sure the mother talked to the principal. And the principal came in and confronted me with how I was dealing with this student. And I said, I am treating him as I would treat my own child. Later years in high school, he ends up in prison. Yep. Yep. Yeah, cautionary tale. May may I say one one more thing, Pastor? Yes, Um, please do. I'm just going to speak from the swine side, I guess. But um, I think a lot of us who were raised in a secular um, environment might relate to that fatherless, fields of the fatherless. And the ancient monument, it just makes me think of the Ten Commandments that in my dad's generation got moved a little bit in the night and then in mine a little more. And when I finally got to know what they like the eighth commandment was a revelation to me because what people were saying oh that's you know there's a difference between a white lie and just massaging something and and then just realizing like who you're being who you're ultimately responsible to what you're telling the truth about yeah. um is so clarifying and it just like rebuilds those monuments kind of puts them back a little bit yeah, exactly. That's a great point and a great take on that verse. Uh, do not move an ancient landmark. Of course, if you notice it has been moved, move it back. <laughs> and, and that's a lot of our project, isn't it? I mean, it's, 
if it's even begun in these generations, it won't be finished for generations to come. But that's if we're defeatist about it, then it's like, oh, let's not do anything. It'll be left to the next generations to get it started. And they'll just be further behind. So let's get it started, even if our experience in moving them back is fraught with all kinds of difficulty and challenge. Still, let's push them back. Let's get things started. And that falls on us. Uh, Previous generations have allowed many of the ancient landmarks to be moved. It's just a fact. But it's a fact that's um, common if you look at the, like, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and you look at the the kingdom uh, as it splits and the two reign. It's constantly the story of moving the landmarks. And then you'll have a good king or two push back for a generation, maybe two at last. And then the landmarks get pushed back again. It's that constant fight against the gravity of sin that we're called to. Um, and we're given the victory uh, in this life and in that which is to come as we fight. So, yeah, it's, um, thank you for that encouragement and for those words. It is worth doing. And it's worth doing because it makes the church and the boundaries of the church obvious and more so obvious to those who are outside that they would desire to enter in. You know, if the project is to sort of move the stones so that the church and the world look more and more alike, the world says more and more, no thanks, I'm good. It's the stark line, the stark boundary, the stark contrast. It's the difference between light and dark. It's the difference between good and evil. It's the difference between heaven and hell. Which side are you on? That's exactly the kind of messaging and preaching is found in the scriptures in Christ and his apostles. Okay, so I took some liberties there, but what else is new? Anything else we want to we wanna chit-chat about? Yes, sir. Yeah, I just... Uh Paul is mentioning uh, the the issue of corporal punishment in school. Uh, sure. Made me think, I don't remember, many moons ago, uh, that's all I'll say, there was this whole uproar because this kid was caught performing some uh, petty crime in Singapore. And he got caned, right? I think they hit him four times with a, a bamboo stick. Someone who really knew how to hit you with a bamboo stick did it. Yeah. And it was very painful to that kid. But I was thinking, you know, uh, what do we do with people who commit petty crimes in our country? Because we're so humane. We send them to humane centers of rehabilitation. Yes. And I've taken a tour. I've never been in a humane center of rehabilitation, but I have taken a tour. uh, And uh, I'll tell you right now, I'd rather be caned any day. Right. 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 That's how humane our society is. Those places are awful. And the, the rehabilitation statistics are so good. Yes. Yeah. That clearly and definitively this works. I, I, know, I, I stole that line from uh, Humane Centers of Rehabilitation from C.S. Lewis's uh, uh, That Hideous Strength. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Put, a, put a, a new criminal in an environment where he's surrounded by experienced criminals. What could go wrong? <laughs> Okay, so then let's see. On to 15. Now, there's a, there's a linguistic marker here, my son, um, that kind of indicates a new subsection. 
Again, zooming all the way out, chapter 22, 17 through 24, 22, we're all in the words of the wise people, this curated and modified list of Solomon. Um, he's kind of extracted this from all the, the wise of his own age. And within that, then, there's a shift with the language of my son. It's a subtle one. But 15 starts, my son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. That is exactly, I mean, this is the true treasure of fatherhood. Of course, parenting in general. But since Saul in the masculine, um, a father's heart beams no more or no more greatly than when his son says the right things. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. Let not your heart envy sinners. One of the great temptations of our day, because our day is a day of lawlessness and apparent lack of punishment, lack of consequence. It's only apparent. I mean, God makes that abundantly clear. History makes that abundantly clear. But we live in a time where the sinners are not severely punished so we need to guard our hearts against envying sinners but not your heart envy sinners but continue in the fear of the lord all the day the fear of the lord echoes the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom the thesis of this work so that recurs here surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off Again, this is just wonderful words of encouragement that, you know, part of the wisdom is, of course, being negative over and against the foolishness that we encounter. But wisdom itself is positive. Wisdom itself is filled with hope and knows that it has a future. So that's where, you know, again... We need to not get ourselves caught down emotionally or spiritually or otherwise in this age where it can be so depressing and it can be so hopeless. But that's true only if we've got our eyes on sin and sinners and the way of the world and the way things are going. As soon as we turn our eyes to the king of kings, as soon as we turn our eyes to the church, which, by the way, the church proper never shrinks. It only adds souls day by day. It only grows day by day as redeemed souls enter heaven, um, we can't forget the positive, hopeful, and bright outlook. I mean, the reason why we're putting up with all of this, the reason why we're fighting, is because in the end we win. It's the great joy of Revelation. Christians today read Revelation exactly the wrong way. Let's read this and get all scared and depressed and worried. Revelation is the story of how Christ wins. No matter how dark it gets, his light is what remains at the end. No matter how hopeless it looks, his hope remains with those who trust in him and will be not even hope in the end because it's all fulfilled. And the victory is Christ, even when it looks like on earth there's defeat. In fact, that's not the case. There are victories on earth And we win on earth just as we win in heaven. So let me give you an example. This is just two different ways of viewing the cross. Did Christ, on Good Friday, let's just limit it to that, did he win or lose? 
I mean, the world's going to say he lost. He died. Many Christians would even say he lost. It's not until the resurrection that he went. That's nonsense. He wins by being faithful unto death, by performing the atonement, by conquering death by death. So what the world counts as loss, and maybe a bunch of foolish Christians count as loss, is in fact an earthly victory. So too, when we bear our crosses, when we keep the faith, no matter what may come, no matter what outcome it looks like to the world or to the church or to foolish Christians, it is nonetheless an earthly temporal victory. And the kingdom of God is filled with victories like this. We need all the more, and I do this all the time with our young kids, especially our young boys, The heroes of the scriptures, those tales need to be told over and over because they're victorious. Even when they die, they die in the faith. They're victorious. It is a a cruciform victory that we wage and that we participate in and that we win. But don't mistake the fact that it's cruciform for it not being a victory. So we already have all kinds of victories and triumphs and conquering down here on earth. It's just you're blind to it. If you think, like, if you can't see the victory in the cross, you're going to be blind to all the rest. And if you see the victory in the cross, that's the light by which you see the victories of Christians all around us. So, yeah, remember, I just love this line where it reminds us that there is a future. Christ has guaranteed that for us. And our hope will not be cut off. There's not going to be a single time in the life of any Christian who's truly a Christian who's going to say, well, that's it. It just went one step too far. Not even Christ can help us. (laughs) Never. So to, especially in these dark and and wicked days, lift up our heads, our redemption draws near. Christ is our future. Christ is our hope. I guess we'll go a little further today. Oh, yes, sir. I'm sorry. Just would make a comment. Hence, it is called Good Friday. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I may preach on this on Good Friday, but when Christ says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. It's great. It's great. I'm not here, I'm not here for you to have like, to, for you to sob over and feel bad for. Um, I'm, you should sob over and feel bad for your sins. If you want to, I'm here to conquer. So when when Peter tries to hinder him, he says, "Get behind me, Satan!" He's going to the cross. That's his victory. And in John's gospel, shall I let this cup pass from me? Absolutely not. This is why I've come. He just says boldly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there's that. (laughs) Okay. So, let's see where we left off. We had future. We had hope. 19. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Now, this is why Christ says of himself, I am the way. And then why he talks about that way. I'm going to preach in a few minutes more about that. But it is a narrow way and it is a difficult way. And anyone who thinks they're like serving the kingdom by telling everyone, no, Christianity is easy, the way is easy, the way is wide, uh, you're, yeah, you're not doing what the Bible's doing. You're doing great harm. 
So hear my son and be wise and direct your heart in the way. That's the path. Not of death, but of life. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. Goes back to pay attention at whose table you are. Not give yourself over to the appetite. Recognize that there's all kinds of trap in food and drink, even though it seems to be just bodily. It has all kinds of spiritual implications, so drunkenness and gluttonness. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. That's a little discriminatory. But it's true, if you eat vegetables all the time, you're not really, you don't really have outward signs of gluttony, at least. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, yeah, even if only in the next life, but in this life they will too. Um, the, you have impulsivity problems in both of them. You have self-medication problems in both of them. Drunkenness, obviously, is just so much more obviously destructive on the long run uh, because it, it stops your ability to even think or act uh, properly. Gluttony can be hidden. I mean, not hidden in the sense, I mean, physically people see it, but I mean the effects of it can be hidden because your mind's still clear, generally speaking. So for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will, co- will clothe them with rags. All right, so this whole idea of being on the way, being wise, knowing there's a future, knowing there's hope versus the path of despair, the path of medicating with alcohol, medicating with food, medicating with sleep, checking out. Those are the two paths that are set before you. Choose wisely. The Lord be with you.